0: the run which gave him his century an equal graces record, one of the greatest moments in the life of Jack Hobbs.
1: It was at this point in the game that Woodfall was unfortunately struck on the heart by a ball from Larwood which got up.
0: No, is it? Is it the ashes? Yes, England have won the ashes.
2: That's it this time. <laughs> he's made sure he's dating Fovac as he gets in, grabs a stump. He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match.
1: On March 26th, 2021, the Cricketer magazine, which has covered every one of those epic moments and so many more, reaches its century. A Hundred Not Out is a considerable achievement for any batsman, but for a sporting publication it's quite exceptional. Founded in 1921, the magazine has survived world wars, global economic crises, pandemics, strikes and numerous financial challenges and is as strong and distinct as ever as it commemorates this landmark with a special celebratory issue. I'm Simon Hughes and it's my privilege to be the editor of The Cricketer at such a momentous time. In this special podcast, we'll look back at the fascinating events that the magazine has reported and commented on, the great matches and phenomenal players it has featured and the intriguing characters responsible for publishing a magazine that dwarfs most others in sport for its authority and longevity. The Cricketer was born in April 1921, the brainchild of Middlesex and former England captain Sir Pelham Warner, known universally as Plum, and his great friend, Geoffrey Foster, who played for Kent and Worcestershire. Plum, who doubled as the cricket correspondent of the Morning Post, was intrigued by Foster's suggestion to start a paper devoted to cricket, an idea that was aired, appropriately enough, while the men were sitting on the pavilion concourse at Lord's. Warner, after whom the famous stand at Lord's was of course named, was a fascinating character. The youngest of 21 siblings to Charles Warner, Trinidad's Attorney General, Plum was born in Port of Spain and despite being sent to school in England when he was 13, had a lifelong passion for West Indies cricket. He was instrumental in organising the first tours to the Caribbean and condemning some islands for their whites-only selection policies ensured the first integration of blacks into both West Indies and England teams of the early 20th century. One of his brothers, Alcher, was actually captain of the West Indies side that toured England in 1900, surely the only instance of two captains of opposing international cricket teams hailing from the same family. So what was Plum like? His granddaughter, Marina Warner, a renowned author herself, has vivid recollections of him, even though she was only six when they first met.
3: Well, he was famous for his courtesy, famous for his very amiable gentle manners. Um, He was extraordinarily unlike athletes today. And even as a child, I was kind of surprised at how slight he was. Um, You know, he was not at all heavily built. And in fact, he suffered from, uh, you know, rather bad health all his life. He'd had TB, I think, as a child. And, you know, he was and he was actually ill for one of the ashes tours. So he, he did, you know, he he and he, he sort of seemed like that. He wasn't exactly frail because he was very erect, and you know, mobile. He would have been quite old when I knew him. So, one of the stories we liked uh, very much uh, him to tell us. There were two stories we liked him to tell us. One was to recite the names of his brothers and sisters in the right order because he had twenty. <laughs> you know, his father had been attorney general in Trinidad. So they lived in a very beautiful house, and he—that's where he learned to play croup. He um, and but there were two, two mother, two. Uh, the first mother had died with the first lot of children, and then there was another lot of children. But there were t- twenty-one in all, and he was the youngest. He was a man of great equanimity and restraint, and kind of—he he doesn't doesn't strike me as somebody who suffered anguish about things. But he was the person responsible for. Integrating the West Indies, the team, the England team, because he said we have to have the best cricketers. I don't think it was because of politics or ideas about justice or anything, but he was always very much, very loyal to his Trinidadian roots. One of his autobiographies, Long Innings, begins with this marvelous description of him learning to learning to bat, you know, and it's, he says, "I learned from the bowling of a black boy called Kilbree." in my father's house in in port of Spain, in Trinidad. He was very famous in our family, the way one has family jokes, that he never ate anything, he was extremely thin. And so, and our favourite story about him not eating was that he, when asked if he would like a second helping, he said, one pea, please.
1: Plum was a sort of cricketing evangelist and by his mid-thirties had written numerous cricket books, including How We Regained the Ashes, after the successful 1903 tour, and Cricket in Many climes, He began his editorial in the first issue of The Cricketer with the words The popularity of and interest in cricket, not only here but in every part of the world where Englishmen are gathered together, was never greater than at the present time. And he set his stall to cover the game in great depth and breadth on a weekly basis. He called The Cricketer a Bible to be collected in instalments. Priced at six pence, two and a half p in today's money, the cricketer was based at 115 Fleet Street and covered a plethora of subjects from a variety of correspondents as eminent cricket historian Stephen Chalk and first, the cricketer's managing editor and historian of the magazine, Hugh Turberville, divulge.
4: I've read the first one and uh, it covers cricket at all levels. Obviously, there isn't much women's cricket in there, I'm afraid, but uh, it's got some schools and some club and uh, international... Uh, and there's some kind of weird articles in those first few years. I was just rereading the history I did in the 1920s, and there was a, an article about growing oranges in South Africa. Um, early on, there was a preview of the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris by Arthur Langford. Uh, his, there was a history of cricket. There was batting um, tutorials. So it was a, sort of an eclectic mix.
2: He was an establishment man, and the cricketer was very much... An establishment magazine. There was an enormous emphasis on public schools, and, uh, and 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 it was a magazine of record. Um, very early on, they had articles about how to coach in the public schools. And Harry Altham, who was a highly influential schoolmaster at Winchester, who later became chairman of selectors and president of MCC, he wrote a series on the history of cricket, which was the basis of the first book he brought out with that name. So I think at that time, I don't think Warner was the sort of man who would have had any misgivings, that he had fingers in too many pies. I think he would have seen himself as somebody championing the game of cricket with an idealistic fervour. And uh, the cricket magazine, the cricketer, would have been um, part of a whole range of things he would have been doing.
1: Warner was the figurehead of the weekly magazine throughout the 1920s and 30s, though his assertion that cricket had a wonderful ability to forge international relations and soothe disputes was compromised by his direct involvement in the famous Bodyline series of 1932 3. After Donald Bradman had totally obliterated England's attack in the 1930 Ashes series with his record breaking tally of 974 runs. Bradman's 199. That's his 200. Well done. Warner was recruited by MCC to assemble a fresh team to win back the urn. He announced that England needed to find a new type of bowler, new ideas for Australia, and persuaded Douglas Jardine, whose only experience of captaincy had been at school, to lead the side. Little did Warner realise what he'd unleashed. Jardine hated the Aussies after an uncomfortable previous tour there, and he studied footage of the 1930s series concluding that Bradman was vulnerable to short pitch bowling on leg stump. He's yellow, he announced. He hatched the notorious leg theory plan and summoned England's two quickest bowlers, the burly-shouldered Harold Larwood and his Nottinghamshire left arm opening partner, Bill Vose, to implement it. There is an early shock for Australia when Fingleton is caught off the second ball of the match. Controversy simmered in the first two tests but then erupted famously during the third in Adelaide when a short ball from Larwood slammed into the chest of the Australian captain Bill Woodfull accompanied by a provocative well-bowled Harold from Jardine deliberately within earshot of Bradman who was a non-striker. It was at this point in the game that Woodfull was unfortunately struck on the heart by a ball from Larwood which got up. The doll was soon dismissed, caught at short leg for eight More short balls followed and more blows to Australian bodies and egos were suffered, provoking a furious reaction from the 50,000 crowd who, at a drinks break, taunted Jardine with, Don't give him a drink, let him die first! But perhaps the most inflammatory incident of the day was when Warner, the self-appointed team manager, visited the Australian dressing room after play to inquire of Woodfull's well-being. It was a touch disingenuous, highlighted by Woodfull's infamous response, Mr Warner, there are two teams out there on the field, one is playing cricket, the other is not. When Bert Oldfield, Australia's keeper, was felled by a bouncer from Larwood the following day, there was a near riot and the England players feared for their safety.
2: Larwood is submitted to a good deal of barracking.
1: But eventually the match continued and England won it comfortably to take a 2-1 lead in the series. But the Australian cricket board fanned the flames of an already combustible series by accusing England's play of being unsportsmanlike, to which the MCC, who were then responsible for the England team, took great exception and eventually governments became involved. England, of course, finished the series 3-1 victors, having effectively cut Bradman down to size, although he still averaged 53 over the four tests that he played in, so how did the cricketer cover these encounters with Pelham Warner and his three hats? England team manager, cricket correspondent of the Morning Post, and editor of the magazine, surely compromised. Here's Hugh Turberville again.
4: Warner didn't address bodyline in the magazine. In fact, he he seemed to leave it to Frank Mitchell, A.K.A. Second Slip, uh, the pseudonym, to condemn the tactics and. Actually, after that, the cricketer's editorial stance just softened towards Bodyline and didn't and didn't seem to, to disapprove of it that much at all, really.
1: As an avid reader from a young age of back issues of The Cricketer, Bodyline had a huge impact on the well-known journalist and TV personality, Piers Morgan.
2: I developed quite a uh, massive interest in the Bodyline series because of Bradburn, and then Harold Larwood and Douglas Jardine so anything anything about those guys I remain to this day completely fascinated by I thought that was for all sorts of reasons the greatest test series of them all and all the ramifications and all the fallout of Bodyline and um, you know what happened to Harold Larwood and what happened to Jardine and what happened to Bradman and it, it's, to me in terms of cricket to me the Ashes has always been the absolute pinnacle and that series Although you could make great arguments for 05 and other series, actually, I think the the Bodyline series was the greatest Ashes series and therefore, for me, the greatest series of all time. So anything about that period, I was obsessed with.
1: Warner was knighted for his services to cricket sometime afterwards. Interestingly, neither Larwood nor Jardine received anything, and he remained editor of the Cricketer through to the late 1950s. But the magazine is indebted to Arthur Langford, a decent club player and long-time contributor for putting it together through most of that time. Echoing the way many of us now work, the magazine's office was moved to Langford's house in Surbiton and his wife Meg ran the subscriptions. It kept publishing weekly even after the outbreak of World War II and the cancellation of several county seasons. There were evocative reports of two men, A.C.L. Bennett and E.L. Roberts, braving the streets of London during the Blitz to deliver the handwritten pages of the cricketer to the typesetters in Bermondsey. Paper rationing finally forced the publication into becoming fortnightly. Once cricket resumed in the late 1940s, there were plenty of fascinating stories to cover Dennis Compton and Bill Edrich's glorious run feast in 1947. Bradman's Invincibles blazing an unbeaten trail round England in 1948. The West Indies, including the famous three W's, Walcott, Weeks, and Worrell, winning their first Test match in England in 1950. And England finally regaining the Ashes after 23 years with a first professional captain, Len Hutton, in 1953. Four runs to get. You see. No,
2: is
0: it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. And the race of all time. What a scene here. No policeman can hope to stop this.
1: Great scenes. This development, the professional captain, was not one that best pleased E. W. Swanton, the writer and broadcaster known to everyone as Jim, who was becoming more and more influential at the cricketer. Especially when England toured the West Indies in 1954 as Stephen Chalk recalls.
2: Swanton thought it was wrong to have a professional captaining an MCC team abroad, that there were wider diplomatic issues that needed dealing with, and it wasn't appropriate to have somebody like Hutton doing it. And, of course, he toured the West Indies the previous winter when there'd been a lot of political and racial difficulties on the tour and personal problems arising, friction between islanders and the MCC team, and... and Swanton, was who had, like Warner, Swanton had a house in Barbados and a lot of feeling for the West Indies. And he felt that MCC had let the show down by sending out a team with a professional captain and not somebody of sufficient social stature to, to impress the, the, the locals in the West Indies and the expats. And whenever they went to any kind of drinks functions at these embassies, This is at the time of uh, the West Indian independence movements bubbling up very strongly. They got to the point where they knew what all the white people were going to say to them, and they couldn't bear it. And what they all said was, you've got to beat these people, or our lives out here won't be worth living. And Hutton is put in as the captain in that environment. And Swanton, with his background, he's going to think you know, this is not appropriate, we're the MCC, we've got to deal with more than the cricket field here and he's blundering about Freddie Truman saying all sorts and and we're not making a good impression here.
1: The cricketer was surviving just with the help of 200 readers who bought shares to keep it afloat. But Sir Pelham Warner had fallen into ill health and finally passed away a day before the distinction between amateurs and professionals, or gentlemen and players as they were officially referred to, was finally abolished in 1962. This opened the door to Jim Swanton becoming editorial director. A large and imposing figure who could recall seeing WG Grace bat and had first written for the magazine in the 1930s, he was in many ways the godfather of the cricketer his span of influence lasting more than half a century. With a rich, treacly voice, Swanton was famous for his post-match summaries on the BBC.
2: And he's caught at cover point by Dexter. Harvey out, caught Dexter, Bill Truman for 53.
1: And his powers extended well beyond the realms of the fourth estate. Here's Stephen Chalk again. I would go to Swanton
2: every time, if I wanted an accurate description of what had happened in a day's play. I think he had an exceptional ability to read a game and report it accurately. I would never go to Swanton for a piece of colourful prose or a sideways insight on anything. He had enormous influence over selectors and everything, He, he, he and he didn't always know things as well as he thought he did he 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 had a sort of papal authority in the game that um, i think the professionals found hard to take seriously he didn't go too far away from the southeast of england um it would be a rare sight even to see him at northampton i think he would love to have been president of mcc um but it never came um he was the greatest snob in cricket i th- i think without question <laughs> but having said all that he was an immensely professional man those summaries he did at, on the television at the end of a day's play they were magisterial but you know the quality of being able to do that without a script such so, so soon after the close of play it's a rare gift australia's captain clean uh, bowled in both innings the
1: north An early challenge to Swanton's editorial direction was presented by the famous Doliviera affair, when the superb, cape coloured batsman was justifiably called up for England's 1968 tour of South Africa. The South African Prime Minister, B.J. Vorster, a Nazi sympathiser, called the selection, not the team of the MCC, but the team of the anti apartheid movement, and refused to accept a squad with Doliviera in it. We will defend this country to the last man. So the tour was called off. Opinions at the cricketer were divided, as Hugh Turberville suggests.
4: It seems some some of the writers um, tried to rationalise the omission on cricketing grounds. Um, John Woodcock and Michael Melford. uh, Robin Marler, Christopher Martin Jenkins, E.W. Swanton and John Arlett very much voiced their disapproval of the decision to originally leave Oliveira out of the party. I suppose bearing in mind he he was recalled for the fifth test so he hadn't been in the side that summer hmm. but then to but then to score 158 and still be left out does seem extraordinary doesn't it
1: Into this political maelstrom stepped the former Somerset batsman Ben Brocklehurst, one of the last amateur county captains who had got into publishing after a previous life as a farmer. He persuaded his employer, Mercury House, to buy the cricketer, which was still battling on at a loss. But when the financial situation did not improve, Brocklehurst's boss gave him an ultimatum, as his widow, Belinda, recalls. The start of the
5: magazine was so remarkable as far as we were concerned from the family point of view because he was a very successful publisher in London working for an American and Mercury House Publications and he ran as he said 23 extremely boring magazines and when Jim came to him Jim Swanton and said that the cricketer was about to be shut down because I think it was Hutchinson's were running it and it was totally uh, you know not making any money. So he persuaded his American boss to let him take it on. And I remember him saying, that he came back and said, right, he's going to buy it. But he's said, on my head, be it if it doesn't make a profit by the end of the year. Well, of course, it didn't. But he said, look, I, he'd been asked to make 40 people redundant. And he said, no, I can't. It was the beginning of the um, recession in the end of 60s, early 70s. So, the, And this boss said he was going to close the cricketer down and so, when Ben said, no, you can't, he said, fine, well, it make 41 redundant. So Ben actually came home as redundant with the cricketer. And so luckily I'd won a bottle of champagne for local village um, fate. So I said, right, come on. So we opened the bottle of champagne and made a great big toast to our future and drank the whole bottle in no time at all and set about bite (laughs) it. It was a very good start to a very strange life. And there we were at our home with the cricketer and Ben and I had one secretary and the children's playroom was taken over as an office and one of our bedrooms became Ben Ben's office and that's how we took it on.
1: Not only did the Brocklehursts accommodate and revive the cricketer, they also expanded its influence by creating three amateur competitions. The Cricketer Cup for public school old boys teams, the Lords Taverners Trophy for under-15s and the National Village Cup, which has now reached a landmark of its own, its 50th year, and offers 22 lucky players the chance to play at Lords, the home of cricket, in the final, which this year is on September the 19th. We have Belinda Brocklehurst to thank for its success.
5: Luckily, his imagination was so terrific and he got the competitions going, ready to help village cricket very much to start with, because that was dying. So he wrote to all the AA pubs and garages that had a village with a population of 2,500 or less, and the whole lot. Um, He wrote to all these people and said, please pass this letter on to the village captain if you have a village cricket side, offering them to join the village cricket competition. And he was talking on the radio about this and saying he needed to have a sponsor, and luckily. Mike Henderson at Hague Whiskey happened to be listening in his car driving to London and got on the phone and said, right, we'll do it. And they came in. They were absolutely brilliant sponsors. And he persuaded Lords to let them have the final at Lords. And it, it it took off. And actually, I had to run it. I had to actually work out how to... I typed it, actually. The first the first, first few years, I had to type the blessed thing out the drawer. We'd worked out that you had to have, I think it was 32 pages with 32 clubs or the odd blank at the first stage to get a finalist. You you wanted to end up with two finalists and it
1: was kind of complicated. Recommended by the inimitable John Arlott, the Australian cricket writer and historian David Frith took over as editor of The Cricketer though the intimidating spectre of E.W. Swanton, the editorial director, still loomed large.
0: There were two mammoth figures in the world of cricket media. And John rang Swanton and said, oh, I think I know the young chap who's uh, right for the job. Sir. But it was quite a daunting thing, going to the Oval and sitting with this very large man with the seal skin voice, Zian. Peebles described it. He, he was uh, a bit of a bully, too. Everyone loved him, but he was a bit of a bully, Jim Swanton. Yeah, and, he was a uh, sort of
1: a larger-than-life kind of character, in a way, wasn't he?
0: He was. He was, uh, you know, he'd been a prisoner of the Japanese during the war. He was uh, a bit of a bully himself. Um, but he enjoyed people kowtowing around him. And... Uh, I I think most people were simply overwhelmed by him, uh, overawed by him. So it wasn't easy for me to slide into that editorial chair. But I soon found out that Jim was a pretty distant editorial director. I got very little communication from him. And that was by phone. We didn't have emails in those days. And, once in a while, he'd express a view. He'd say, you've put Tony Lewis on the front cover sweeping. I abhor the sweep. It's a very poor shot. I don't want to see it again. <laughs> I it's quite a decent picture, aesthetically. Um, we used to have editorial conferences in the back of a taxi on his way to the club they were enthralling years they
1: really were it's yeah I mean look really looking quite... back on those years uh David it were quite they were sort of very much uh, changing times for the magazine because uh well firstly the, the the introduction of things like the Cricketer Cup and the National Village Cup and so on, and also um a woman's column as well by Rachel Hayhoe Flint, so some quite big changes in terms of content and i suppose trying to appeal to a wider audience
0: oh it had to be dragged out of the 1930s that's for sure <clears throat> and uh, it, it, rachel was great fun she she was good to work with lovely girl and i remember rushing to lords in order to see the first ball ever bowled by a woman at lords and nearly went under a bus in my uh, panic to get to the ground in time and uh, to see her and the girls wandering around the long room in their skirts was... Um, uh, today, you wouldn't take exception to that because it was uh, it's now a ladies' club as well. Um, but in those days, it was revolutionary.
1: The editor of the cricketer was a high-profile position in the game, affording Frith rare intimacy with the leading players, even during a test match, but it was a painstaking process, putting the magazine, which was now published monthly, together.
0: I was in uh, many a test match room and dramatic things happened. The first one that comes to mind is being in uh, the Lord's dressing room and Gary Sobers came back in feeling very unwell. He'd been drinking quite heavily the night before and he was 100 and something not out. And he just needed a rest. He came in and happened to be in there with, with the West Indians. Then it was just so relaxed, so nice.
4: And
1: um, what was the process of producing the magazine on a kind of weekly basis? By today's standards,
0: it was all very, very laborious. I'd have to type out every offering unless the uh, journalist happened to have a typewriter of his own. Then I'd sub it before sending it off. The Postal Service was the thing. Everything went by post. They'd send me the proofs back. I'd read them, correct them, cut them out, paste them down, find the picture, show where the picture space was, send it back to the printer. Towards the end, as you got towards publication day or, or printing day, press day as he called it, he would send a messenger to ensure that nothing got held up in the post.
4: And in the air, what's that? Is he out? He's out. Amos,
2: Lord Jenner, Ball Thompson, England, two for ten, and Thompson has
4: two for four.
1: The seventies was a lively decade in the cricket world. Jeff Thompson and Dennis Lilly exacted revenge for Bodyline in a bruising 1974 five series in Australia. The first World Cup was staged in 1975. Another competition, actually initiated by Ben Brocklehurst and there was the Kerry Packer revolution in 1977, ushering in floodlights, white balls and coloured clothing, prompting the origination of the term pyjama cricket. Frith took a firm but positive line on it. If hundreds of thousands of dollars are on offer to the players, then so long as test cricket remains unharmed, the authorities would be remiss in their duty if they did not build it into the game. The campaign to make cricket more lucrative and therefore more attractive to the young must continue. A young English star burst onto the scene about this time and his sole interest was Test cricket and duffing up the Aussies.
2: And he's bowling, first ball. What a return. Look at Botham, absolutely delighted. His first wicket in Test match cricket and what a scalp
0: to get.
1: Ian Terence Botham took five Australian wickets on his Test debut and tormented the old enemy for a decade with his fearless batting and waspish swing bowling. His finest moments were, of course, in the epic 1981 Ashes, beginning with that swashbuckling second-inning century at Headingley. The BBC cricket correspondent Christopher Martin Jenkins, known universally as CMJ, had recently become the new editor of The Cricketer and was part of the TV commentary team for that series. Lovely shot. Absolute thoroughbred strength.
5: that, let alone chasing it, it's gone straight into the confectionery stall and
1: out again. Botham's heroics coincided with the cricketer celebrating its diamond jubilee and in the second half of this programme we'll hear how a succession of excellent writers, editors, owners and intrepid staff helped it not only survive but gain strength as it grew towards its century. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Cricketer at www.thecricketer.com.
3: Sports Social Podcast Network.